what we were trying to do at the beginning was, you know, what you try always try when you're doing research, try to be uh, 10, 20% better than the state of the art, try to do something that is flashy, nice, and, and compare yourself with a lot of other methods. That's actually not what you need to do when you're starting a business, right? You just need to make sure that uh, what you're creating is something that your clients are willing to pay. Hi, and welcome back to the latest edition of Clearview's Founder Vision. I'm joined today by Rafael Pajes, uh, co-founder and CEO of Volagrams. How are you today, Rafa? Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm doing pretty well. It's uh, already around 6 p.m. here in Spain, where I am right now. <laughs> so it's almost dark. I see the sun going through your window, so I'm feeling jealous. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us. Um, so tell us a little bit about what Volagrams uh, does and um, how you ended up founding the company. Sure. So Volagrams is an Irish startup. So even though I'm, I'm from Spain, as you can probably tell by my accent, <laughs> and I'm currently in Spain, just as a coincidence, Volagrams is from Ireland. We're based in Dublin. And we're experts in, in technologies to bring 3D humans to augmented virtual reality. Uh, immersive technologies in general, visual effects, games, etc. So we've been doing this professionally for a few years. So this means that to record a person in 3D while they're, while they're doing a performance or while they're acting or giving a speech, you need typically a studio with multiple cameras surrounding the person. Uh, and then you take all these cameras and through a volumetric video uh, processing algorithm, you would get these assets that then you can integrate in, in VR and in AR. However, we recently uh, went one step further and released a new product that allows you to do that with one single phone. So no need for the studio or anything like that. And that's, uh, I think, pretty remarkable uh, because right now we've seen that uh, virtual reality and augmented reality or the metaverse, as everybody's talking about right now, <laughs> have a problem of content creation. So we're trying to solve that. Uh, so who is the, uh, the smartphone application aimed at? So the the app is called Volume. So you can search it, search for it in the in the app store. It's called Volume by Volograms. Uh, for now, it's only available in iOS, but it will be ready in Android uh, uh, very soon. So we'll start beta testing it in in the next few weeks. Now I I know that uh, in our our prior call you mentioned that the company was started out of uh, a, a university research project. Can you talk to us a little bit about? how that works for those who aren't familiar with that and, and sort of how you went from university research project to founding a co the company? Yeah, sure. I think that's actually very interesting because there's, I think there's a lot of researchers like myself that at some point would like to start their own company. <laughs> and I wouldn't say that I'm, I'm a role model or anything like that, but I've been through the process so that might be helpful. <laughs> So I was working as a postdoc researcher at Trinity College in Dublin. So once I finished my, finished my PhD in, in Spain, I moved to Dublin to continue working as a, as a researcher with the idea of continuing, you know, uh, getting experienced uh, and getting exposed to all these new cool technologies, specifically to create content for VR and AR. Initially, we were trying to do this, this tech called free viewpoint video. So you could just move a camera around freely, as you probably have seen in some sports broadcasts. So the thing is that after developing the technology and, of course, publishing the papers and stuff like that, filing for, pat for patents, which is the typical thing that you do when you're in academia, 
we started to get some interest, not only from, uh, from other researchers and other institutions, but also from potential uh, clients and partners that would like to use the technology commercially. So we, what we did is that we did a, a short market research study to understand who would be paying for this and if it was really uh, an opportunity that we should take to spin out and to create the company uh, with the technology that we, that we had developed at the university. So the result of the of the research was that uh, we were actually addressing one of the biggest issues that you could see at the time for with VRAR, as I was mentioning, content creation, and that it was totally worth it. So we decided to move on. So we opened the, the company with the technology that we had developed. So we had to get to an agreement with the, the Trinity's technology transfer office. We licensed the technology that we ourselves had developed, <laughs> which is pretty typical. And, um, and yeah, that was the beginning of the company. I'm curious, like, how does that piece work? Because, you know, a lot of founders might not have experience with that. And is, is licensing technology from a university like that, is that available to people who weren't on the project? And, you know, what's the process for seeing what is available? So I guess that it, it, it's different depending on in what university you are. So I think that uh, if you are working in the university, you're basically getting paid for developing technology, developing uh, research, let's say, then the IP belongs to the university because that's the, whoever is paying you. So if you want to spin out and, and start your own business based on that IP, there is some licensing that needs to, to go on. I know that some universities are very strict about that. Some other universities are, are kind of encouraging you to create a company with it. So they would actually help you with the whole process. And that was the case of Trinity. So we have a bunch of people in the uh, Trinity Technology Transfer Office that helped us through the process, uh, through the whole process, helped us find investors, even clients, and also uh, gave us like uh, some uh, licensing, a licensing deal that was actually very favorable for us. We couldn't, it was funny because we there was a conflict of interest, so we could not negotiate it ourselves. So we had to find a third party person to help us with that whole process. But I think at the end, everybody was happy with the result. Wait, so you couldn't negotiate it yourself because you just didn't have the knowledge on how to negotiate it or? Not really. The thing is that, so in most of these places, if there's a license of a technology that was developed by some researchers, they will get some of the, of the profits, let's say, of licensing that technology. But if the, develop, the researchers themselves are the ones licensing the technology for their own startup, then there's a conflict of interest because you would be let's say, paying a license and then receiving money from that license at a personal level. So that's why there is a conflict of interest, basically. Is it expensive to, to license things from a university like this? Not really. So most of the times what you end up having is, well, uh, sometimes it's not really involved in the whole licensing project, uh, process, but you will get like some equity, a part of the, of the company. Some other option, for instance, is to pay a license. The, oh, another option, which is, for instance, our case was to get a, depending on what was the model. So for instance, in, in the case of uh, of doing sales, like service sales or something like that, they will get a percentage. And then in licensing the technology, they will get a percentage. So the university only wins if you win. And if you're not, uh, they, they don't, they actually want you to succeed. So they're not going to, let's say, strangle you in fees or anything like that. Right. So how did you take the research project that you guys had uh, worked on and then you know, turn that into a, a, a business. Yeah, that was a very interesting part. So then uh, what we were trying to do at the beginning was, you know, what you try always try when you're doing research, try to be uh, 10, 20% better than the state of the art, try to do something that is flashy, nice, and, and compare yourself with a lot of other methods. 
that's actually not what you need to do when you're starting a business, right? You just need to make sure that uh, uh, what you're creating is something that your clients are willing to pay. So that that's why I always insist on doing this kind of uh, market research uh, at some point uh, before you try to start commercializing the technology. Because that micro market research is going to help you understand who is going to be paying for that. So for us, uh, the, the research project that we were doing, we were part of this, this project called vSense at uh, Trinity College. Uh, we were focusing on trying to make uh, volumetric capture, which is the name of the tech, as simple as possible. So we were started with uh, five or six phones, and that was really challenging. It was actually the results uh, were pretty good given the very hard conditions that we were doing it. However, that was not the product that a client will be willing to pay because in, in real world conditions, people were not capturing in the way that we were doing it, which was with five phones standing outdoors without synchronization, without, I don't know, each of them with a different sensor, different orientation, no color correction. That was not really like a professional application. So what we ended up is building a case that we knew that clients were willing to pay for. So getting the technology that we had working in the lab, putting it in, into a very small kind of studio and productize the technology. So uh, whenever we had a client, they could come over, we could actually start shooting and we could deliver the assets at the end of a certain time. So that transition from we're doing this in a scrappy, researchy way to get better than the state of the art went from let's get this code and put it into a product that initially was only being used by us, but it also into a process with uh, all the operations around it so we could support the business. So that transition, for instance, in, in our case, was relatively complicated because even though us, we, we all had experience uh, in industry, we had never kind of done or built the process from, from scratch. So that was kind of the beginning of the company and how we, let's say, grew into starting offering a, a serious product. I went at the beginning, it was just, let's say, a, a service. Yeah. And, and who wanted the product at that time? Like, who, who were you selling the solution to? Yeah, so most of our clients were uh, creators. Uh, and I'm, when I go with creators, I'm, I mean really like uh, create companies that were doing content for other bigger companies. Let's say, for instance, you are a brand and you want to develop this new this new application or this new activation campaign, whatever, using virtual or augmented reality, which uh, it was very, it was growing a lot when we started. So there was a lot of demand of using AR, mobile AR and stuff like that. And you wanted to bring like a real person to that. So this typically would be if you have like an influencer, if you have like a brand ambassador, or if you have somebody that really requires to be there, not an avatar or not a robot or anything like this. Uh, so we saw that the, so even though our client typically was the creative agency that was building the whole product, the type of projects that we were doing were normally around marketing, around cultural experiences. That was a lot of what we were doing, a lot of sports, uh, around, uh, for instance, uh, we were doing celebrities, we were doing social media, stuff like that. I was surprised, for instance, to see how many projects we were getting around the cultural space. Uh, so a lot of people wanted to capture historical figures, and, and then creating immersive experiences around that. Okay. And at that stage, or kind of when you guys were, were getting started, how did you raise funding to keep things going? <laughs> yeah, interesting. So the, we're actually pretty lucky because um, here in Ireland, they have um, a couple of funds, or specifically one fund that is dedicated to uh, help, let's say, researchers or people that are building deep technology and high technology in the university 
and help them transition from the lab to the company, basically helping you commercialize the technology that is being developed in the in the research institution. So this fund called the University Bridge Fund, which is managed by Atlantic Bridge, it's an investor, it's based here and also some other places in Europe and in the US, was perfect for us because we were basically that. We were a technology developed in the university with uh, starting to get some attention, massive potential because it was in a space that... Uh, it is in a space that it's growing and uh, everybody seems to think it's the future. So then it was a, it was a perfect case for us. So that was the, our first funding, how we started. And there's also like another local investor here at the Bryce Ireland uh, that helps companies kind of thrive and, and, and getting started early. So that was the first money that we got and how we started going for the, let's say, first year and a half or two years. <laughs> so those first couple of years, what would the team consist of? I mean, was it you know, all developers and you, and you guys just sort of all handled the more business-oriented tasks or did you build out a team with non-technical operations folks as well? Yeah, so when we started the company, we were three. <laughs> the three of us with a similar background, three of us technical, and it is true that we have different interests, but yeah, three anyway. So the first couple of hires that we got were... Uh, around the tech. So we got um, some other people to, for instance, help me develop some of the technology and, and help me also free up some time so I could do some of the business and development and the sales and stuff like that. Uh, we Similarly, we hired another developer. So even like the, five, the first five people that we were in the company were all technical, including myself, of course. But of course, I was a little by little transition towards being more business development, sales, doing the taking over the marketing and all that stuff. The following one was really like a really key hire for the company because it was the first business development person who has grown a lot uh, to become right now our chief commercial officer. And he took all the, let's say, responsibility in, in developing the new sites of the business into figuring out how we were going to charge for this and even some of the operation. Uh, so that would be our first year, basically six people. <laughs> And then when we started doing a few more projects and started getting a little bit of traction, we expanded the team to include more, uh, let's say, computer vision engineers, computer vision researchers, and some other software engineers that will help us build uh, the rest of the platform. Then I think the last hire that we did in this first period was a marketing person, because at some point we realized that even though I was enthusiastic about marketing, I actually didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> so we, we, we needed somebody to help us there. But yeah, I would say that uh, most of our team is technical team because we're we're a deep tech company. We're still developing a lot of the machine learning and deep learning algorithms. So it is important that we have a pretty strong background in technology. Yeah. And so how, how did you transition from being primarily a services provider to uh, offering more of a product or a solution or, or have you not made that transition? Yeah, sure. We have. Uh, we've done it in, in a couple of stages. So. Of course, we knew, I think, having done that market research, we understood what was the problem. The problem was that if you wanted to create, bring humans to augmented or virtual reality, it was very complex. You needed to use one of these massive volumetric capture studios. And at that time, there was like 10 in the whole world. So it was very complicated. If you, For instance, if you, if you were living in Europe, there was one in, in London, and that's it. <laughs> so for the whole Europe, we started ours, and then there was two, one in London and one in Dublin. Uh, so we knew that we had to make this technology more accessible. So you could have volumetric capture studios in other places like in Poland, like in Spain, I'm from Spain. 
I'm lying. Actually, there was another one in France. So there was two when we started in the, to cover the whole Europe. But the problem is to set up one of these studios was very complicated and expensive, especially at the time. So we wanted to say we wanted to uh, rely on the cameras that some of these creators already had. So people had plenty of cameras, print plenty of equipment that they've been using from different things, and we just wanted them to use the hardware that they already have with our software solution. Uh, so for that, we needed to build something that was very uh, reliable, that was very versatile. And as I was telling you at the beginning, the very first step that we did or the very first prototype of the tech was working with just a bunch of phones. So we knew that our tech could work in any in any of these use cases. So that was the first thing we wanted to solve. The second thing was the processing uh, time. So it requires a lot of, uh, let's say, servers, power to be able to process all this information. So we said, okay, let's just put everything on the cloud so clients won't need to buy servers or anything like this. And then the third one was uh, what I was saying earlier also, that not only that it would work with slower number of cameras, but also it will work with different types of setups. So you want to capture your face only, then uh, you don't need to use 20 or 30 cameras. You might only need to, to, to have four or five and that's not enough. But if you want a really big space to capture multiple people, you can put there 100 cameras and it will work too. So it was us adapting us to, to, adapting us to the to the client's need and not the other way around. So we we built, uh, we already had, let's say, the technology to support that. Uh, and at the beginning, of course, we had to do the whole thing, the whole pipeline. We had to bring people in our studio, do the capture, do the reconstruction, then even do the integration in some some cases. And and that was, that, I think that a lot of companies start this way because it helps you understand who is about, who is going to pay for this. It helps you understand what is the, what are the pain points and helps you build something that at some point you can just give away and people to use by themselves. So we that was actually our objective and we were trying to get. And uh, and I think the pandemic changed this completely, of course, because uh, suddenly we were still kind of depending on our clients doing their own projects with actors, you know, in, in their studios. And suddenly there was no, <laughs> no production happening for one year. <laughs> so it was, uh, okay, what do we do now, right? But the mission of the company had been always to simplify this tech and make it even simpler. Uh, as I was saying, we started from the mobile phone. So we wanted to go back to the phone, but instead of now having to do it with multiple phones, we could do it with one single phone. But that had to be like a completely a solution that was going to work for anyone. So it's now, it's totally a product, as you can imagine, because it's an app, it's in the app store. And, and in that case, we could not guide or hold the user's hand, you know, throughout the whole process. So the product is out there. You can test it right now if you want to. And I think it's a meaningful, meaningful change from going to the ma- massive camera studios with a lot of operational costs and a lot of the difficulties to run, to integrate, to now is something that you just take your phone and you record. So, yeah, <laughs> that transition from starting small to now offering it on a phone, it's been long, but I think it makes sense. As far as the evolution of the product or you know, the, the team, you know, knowing what you know now, is there anything you would have done differently when you were starting out? <laughs> That's an interesting question. I think, yeah, I think that when we were starting at the beginning, we were um, focusing a lot on trying to to prove that there was willingness to pay. Um, so, and we were basically accepting any project. <laughs> so there was uh, people coming with uh, very restricted budgets. We will spend some time with them. And then decide, okay, this is, we're going to do this project, even though we might not be making a lot of money uh, from it, uh, because it's going to give us, I don't know, publicity, or it's going to give us a good relationship, or we're going to be able to use the assets in a marketing campaign. 
if I was starting again, I would actually limit that type of, uh, let's say, service projects that we were doing. And I would focus most in, more, more in, in kind of building the technology and, and building something that uh, can survive on its own. I'm, I don't regret doing it. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but now that, I, that I've seen uh, how much time and distraction they take uh, from your actual goal, I would have focused a little bit more on, on the actual goal instead of chasing the small euros or dollars. Well, for other entrepreneurs out there who might be kind of faced with a similar situation, like how, how did you, like, like how would you advise entrepreneurs to to look at at that kind of conundrum and, and make a decision on their own business if it makes sense to, you know, just get users and you know, and you know, how, how do you advise people to to, to approach that problem now? Yeah, I think you probably need to kind of put things into a balance and, and see what is worth it or not. But the important thing, in my opinion, is that you have a very clear roadmap or where you, of where you want to go. Uh, it doesn't really have to be specifically detailed on what you're going to be doing every week. But if you want to go to one specific place, you have an idea of how your product is going to look like in a couple of years, even if it's an ideal case scenario. And everything that you do needs to take you there. So if you do if you do a project that is actually not taking you there and taking you in the opposite direction or, or a tangential direction, it really has to bring you either a lot of money or a lot of users or a lot of visibility. Otherwise, it's distracting you from your mission. So even though it sounds like very you know cliche, just figure out if that's really going to help you build your mission or not. Because if it's not, it might give you like a, a little bit of money now but it's actually that money is going to cost you more afterwards. Right. Now, how did you decide to build the company in, in Ireland? <laughs> well, uh, it was very easy. I was already in Ireland <laughs> when so I was working with, uh, I was working in Trinity College Dublin. So I was already based in Ireland. My other two co-founders were there in the lab with me, even though neither of us are Irish. So my other two co-founders, Jan and Costas, they are Czech and Greek. <laughs> they were three immigrants building this company in Ireland. And uh, so that, that's the reason, basically. Um, uh, some friends of mine, especially the Spanish, always joke that I, we went there because of the taxes, but <laughs> it was uh, circumstantial. So we weren't living there when we decided to, to create the company. And, and beyond the like founding team members, how did you go about finding your first team members? Yeah, that was an interesting process. Of course, as you can imagine at the beginning, even though we had a little bit of funding, we didn't have much money. So we, we cannot really hire like incredibly senior, senior people. So most of the hires we have done, uh, even up to today, but especially at the beginning, were coming from our networks. So for instance, we were very close to Trinity. So we make sure to get ourselves known among the students that people that were going to get out of the, I don't know, the masters or their PhDs and try to convince them to join a company where their contribution was going to be massive compared if they were going to go to, let's say, big tech, which in Ireland, by the way, it's incredibly popular. You can imagine here we have Facebook, Google, oh, sorry, Meta, Google, <laughs> uh, Amazon, uh, we have Microsoft, we have all of the big tech companies are based in, in Dublin or almost all. So uh, it's very complicated to, to fight for talent against them. And what were some of the the strategies you ended up using in the beginning to to market your business and just to find users and customers? Yeah, so at the beginning, 
we we did um, a few examples of well, well basically what we wanted is is at some point to be a kind of self serve type of product so people could help us so we oh since the beginning always had like a few assets that people can download test with play with we built a couple of demos that they could also download on their own devices and test and see how potentially their own creations could look in AR so that was a a really easy way for them to understand how the technology could look once the project was done. And we've been using those demos until a few months ago. So you can imagine that we still have some of the assets on our website. So kind of having some materials that people could use by themselves fix uh, or solves a lot of problems, uh, especially when you are you don't have the resources to kind of uh, go and, and personalize each treatment for everyone that is coming to you. Then we were also kind of um, trying to be... Um, very open about the things that we were doing and showcasing all our stuff, trying to build very nice videos and cool um, use cases. And and I think that was uh, the way we got our first clients, mostly based in Ireland. Of course, Ireland is a relatively small country in terms of population. So if you create something that's cool and resonates quickly, uh, it's easy to get to the right people soon. But of course, our goal was not to stay in Ireland, was to actually continue growing to other countries and build a, a business that was multinational. The kind of the efforts that we did for the first couple of years building this professionally helped us a lot when we launched actually the consumer product because we already had some credibility. We had we were already the one of the solutions in the market that was more affordable, easier to do, and and this was a continuation of our mission. So I think not too many people were surprised when we suddenly came up with something that was as accessible as doing it with one single phone. Because we had been saying that for some time, that the objective was at some point to come back to the phone. So when we launched, I think uh, we had a lot of support from from the community in general. And I'm curious, like with uh, you know Facebook, obviously you know making a big deal of of you know their going all in on on metaverse, and you know I'm sure we all have a sense of of kind of what that's going to be. But uh, has that sort of changed your conversations with? investors or potential team members that you know it's already or you know is this something that i you know the investment community was anticipating for a few years yeah i think i think it actually it definitely has changed uh, some dynamics uh, especially because even though there has been signs reports and and uh, a lot of um, ways to prove that there was going to be a growth in this market and now it's called metaverse but it was called xr before and then it was called mixed reality augmented reality it doesn't really matter i mean we put everything into the same bucket it is true that actually having mark zuckerberg changing the name of the company uh, towards what's going to be the future which is our space not only has helped with some of these investors but in general with the general public i mean I remember having to explain all the time what AR was and what we were doing and why it was important. And since since the, it was announced, we appeared on TV just because we are, you know, one of the European companies doing volumetric capture, which is great for the metaverse, right? So it's not only the investors, it's the general public. And I think now with this big company making such a big commitment, it's a, it's a great validation point. But at the same time, you know the community is a little bit uh, has mixed feelings about that because uh, it's not that Facebook has the <laughs> the cleanest of the reputations and uh, and of course um, uh, one of the good things about the XR community is that it grew uh, on top of open standards and again trying to integrate things from one place to the other 
And, and there's some fear that uh, Facebook or Meta could try to control the whole field, right? So yeah, it's it's weird. It's a mixed feelings, I would say. Yeah. Well, and it's it's also kind of interesting because I think from you know an investor standpoint, um, you know, the, the, it it almost makes you know this really risky deep tech development almost risk free. And and what I mean is that when you've got big players like Facebook. You know, it, even if for whatever reason your technology doesn't get to where you want it to be, and, and you know, hopefully that doesn't happen. But you know, a company like Facebook is going to be there, at, you know, to do an aqua hire at a minimum. So you almost have no downside to you know building tech like this when big players are are you know going to obviously at some point start gobbling up any company or or individual that does this type of work. Uh, I guess I'm saying that there's not really a question there, but. <laughs> <laughs> but just to say that there's still no equivalent of Facebook or equivalent of Instagram or Snapchat or TikTok in augmented or virtual reality. So there's some tries uh, to, to build some social experiences, but we're still far. So these, uh, I'll, I'll change the, the question to something like, could you become <laughs> something like that in the future? And then even at some point replace. So there, there's companies that are, are trying to fill that gap right now uh, that we see that content is an issue, that it's very complicated to create content. And, and if the metaverse is going to thrive, there needs to be content creation tools. That's why we exist, right? And uh, there's plenty of other companies that are trying to cover that space in different ways with avatars, with, uh, I don't know, 3D scanning of objects, things like this, bringing your reality into the metaverse or into augmented reality. Uh, so not only Facebook is, uh, you know, potentially acquiring all of us, it's more like uh, there's still space to actually become one of the big tech players of the future. Yeah. Well, and I'm, so I'm curious, like, are there um, are there certain uh, like I'm, certain data sets that you look at that that tell you when we're going to be at a tipping point uh, where augmented reality becomes like a more regular usage. And I can't help but think about, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember, you know, the days, the early dot-com days when, you know, companies like Webvan and, you know, all, all these companies that like flamed out spectacularly, but everything, every big company that flamed out, there's now like a highly profitable, you know, huge business, you know, doing exactly that. You know, the companies like Webvan were just far too early, you know, and a, a lot of technology, you know, like the fact that we all have smartphones and, you know, broadband access now, you know, created a tipping point where a lot of businesses now make sense. But 10 years before they were just too early, you know, where are we at in like the augmented reality space? And are there certain data sets that you look at, whether that's, you know, broadband um, capacity or, you know, that, that tell you, you know, hey, we're a little early now, but you know, we need to be here now because that this tipping point is going to happen, you know, at on X date. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of signs. I think the most important sign right now is when we uh, use st- uh, augmented reality without knowing <laughs> that we are using it. So you're using it right now in Google Maps because it's telling you where to go directly overlaid on the street. We are using it right now, potentially, in the, on your car with some of the heads up displays and some understanding of the road you're using it uh, 
every time you use a face filter or something on Instagram or Snapchat, all of those are augmented reality. And I think that's a good sign that if we stop adding the AR or the MR or the metaverse tag to what the things that we're doing, then it means that they are already so common that people just forget about the technology that it's behind it. It's like you're not saying smartphone, smartphone, smartphone all the time. You just say my phone. And because it's, uh, you're assuming that all the phones are smart now. <laughs> yeah, well, same with like social stuff, right? I mean, it was that way, you know, you, talk, you heard far more about social media when, when Facebook and those companies were just getting going. And now it's just like, just now how people use it, right? I mean, it's everything has a like button. And for some people, it's even the internet, you know, like uh, they became so big. But there's still a couple of things that I think that are going to change uh, completely and disrupt the space. I think that uh, the new wave of glasses and, and uh, the new generation of glasses, it's going to um, make us start using it little by little. I think that's a really important tipping point. I think there's one company that every time they enter a market, they completely disrupt it, which is Apple, where everybody is waiting for Apple to see what they're doing because, you know, they've been hiring like thousands of engineers to build their headsets and there's rumors that it's going to come up next year, even even though it might still be like a pretty bulky headset. We know that Apple's not going to get into a market to get the, the you know, the, the a little business. They enter to conquer it and to completely create a new category of, of, of devices. And so... Only even even that sign is already like a pretty good sign of how this is going to be growing. I think sometimes it's difficult to envision how the future is going to be, but when you start do, using it regularly, then you very quickly realize how much potential it has. Is is there going to be one metaverse, or is is you know is there like a, a first mover advantage where uh, you know one company is going to end up capturing you know the entire market? Or are are these going to be highly segmented, you know, based on, you know, people's specific interests? I hope that it's not going to be one metaverse. I actually really like the movie Ready Player One, but I don't believe that's the future of VR or AR. I think that the metaverse is going to be like the internet, or it should be like the internet. There's no one internet, right? So there's the internet is a, a set of... Uh, of tools for us to communicate and to build stuff onto. I really think that the metaverse should be something like that, something that everybody can use different places and it's not going to be one company ruling everything. If it's like that, then I think we'll be doomed. <laughs> it's better than there's multiple, let's say, companies working together and, and there's like a, the base of the metaverse is something like the internet. Now, how do you think about you know some of the problems that you know, people are already envisioning, um, you know, by because of augmented reality. And I, I can't help but think like all the criticism Facebook and Google and other companies receive about their algorithms, you know, and, and how the algorithms, you know, people seem to think that, you know, they're evil. And, and I happen to know lots of engineers who work at those companies and, and, you know, who contribute to those algorithms and none of them mean for them to have ill effects on society. So how is uh, your company thinking about uh, that? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I think that, um, I think that we, it's, it's unfair to, to go and judge the algorithms. <laughs> it's more uh, how we interpret how the algorithms work or how we, how we program them to work really. So sometimes we say, you know, in, in AI, 
that the result of your network or of your algorithm is as bad as your data. <laughs> I mean, or it's as good as your data. If, if you don't have, like, for instance, diverse data, then you're going to have, have biased results, right? So um, I think that this last few years, seeing how the algorithms have been in, you know, in, in focus uh, in the media, we have seen how, how many problems they have caused. I think those are helping uh, us building the next, the next generation of algorithms. I think we, we are uh, we're using nowadays AI all the time. So I don't think, I think, of course, it makes like a good, good news, <laughs> especially like, you know, and we, when we live in the, in the world of the clickbait, but your, your phone, it's doing a lot of AI algorithms that are not really changing your life for the bad. It's actually changing it for the good. But then when we see how easy it is to manipulate people with the social feeds and stuff like that, you can see the power of doing it in, in an evil way. I don't think that AR can escape that, but I don't think they are they are also like extremely dangerous because most of the times what you're going to try to do is understand what is around you and uh, and for that you need algorithms to read the world around you and hopefully uh, we will have learned <laughs> the lessons from what happened in the last few years with the big social media platforms and and we will build something that it's uh, fun and fair and, and better to yeah, I guess the the concern that a lot of people I- I express is, you know, like how does how is this going to affect you know kids in particular in their development and you know like as a as a parent um, you know if something comes along like you know like the metaverse and it, it is su- successful you know it kind of presents parents with like a, a bit of a conundrum in that you know if I you know sure I could tell my kid that he can't you know, you know, he can't be on it or he has to limit the, you know, the number of hours that, you know, he's in this augmented reality. Uh, however, if, you know, it, you know, as you kind of said, if it is, it does become a replacement for the internet. And that's just how we begin uh, to interact with the internet. Then you sort of have the issue that if I don't allow my children to participate, then are, you know, then they're not part of the, the way you know, the vast majority of, of kids their age are growing up. They're, they're isolated from that part of their, their social circle. Um, how do you think about issues like that? Yeah, I think that's a tricky question, of course. But I, I tend to be optimistic, let's say. Um, in general, I'm an optimistic, optimistic person. But, um, but I would say that we've lived um, in every generation, there was something that some like that that would uh, in my in my when I was a teenager, it was the Microsoft Messenger. I don't know if that was like a hit any other place other than Spain, but in Spain it was massive. I would just go stay there in Microsoft Messenger all evening, and if my parents wouldn't let me there, you could say that I was missing part of that, right? My brother he grew up with a smartphone, and uh, he's a, a lot younger than me. Um, so it's the same. What do we do? Do we give smartphones to our kids and we are, you know, we know that we're exposing them to the whole internet in, in their pockets or, um, so it's, it's going to be the same with, um, with the next generation of, of digital platforms like the RAR, the metaverse in general. So if, if you, if you don't let them in, that's definitely going to, they're definitely going to miss out. But I think that this is the responsibility of, uh, of the parents, uh, to actually educate their children the way they want to educate them. I wouldn't be, I, I don't think it's anything more traumatic than what we probably have experienced 
I don't know what was in your generation, but in mine, definitely the Microsoft Messenger <laughs> was basically spending all my hours there chatting with the people that I was meeting at school anyway. So I don't know. Kids are weird. <laughs> Just have a couple of, of last questions for you. I'm curious, like, you know, what are you working on now? Like, what, what is, are the big problems that you're tackling on the business or technology side for the next 12 months? Yeah, sure. So our, as I was saying earlier, we have just launched an app called Volume. Uh, you can download it from the App Store. So the app allows you to do volumetric capture with one single phone. So this means that you can record somebody in 3D and then you can put that person in AR. You can make the big, small, put it whatever you want. This is a very complicated uh, system because it does 3D reconstruction from one single viewpoint. And of course, not all the solutions are fixed. Uh, so we, we, sorry, not all the, not all the poses and all the, uh, reconstructions are always working great. So most of the times they are, but we still need to improve it. We want to make a solution that is almost as good as having a studio. So we're focusing a lot on the on the quality, let's say, and, and the, the whole user experience. But our next step and what we will be focusing on probably next year will be to also make it as useful as possible for developers because they are the ones that at the end of the day are going to be creating content regularly to use it in their own production. So the same type of clients that we were having for the professional setups, now we're going to give them this tool that is going to allow them to create content uh, in a much simpler way than they, they were doing it before. So we are building right now integration so they can put it in the different software tools. We're also uh, going to be uh, allowing them to export the models, uh, do longer sequences, uh, integrate it into web AR experiences. We're doing a lot of stuff so we can uh, make volume not only a very cool app but also a very useful app for them very cool and, and for those listeners out there who uh are, all this sounds great too and are interested in, in potentially joining your team first like what are the skill sets that you're you're going to be looking for over the next six to 12 months and you know what's your pitch for joining uh volagrams <laughs> well so volagrams we are um irish company multinational so we are 16 people right now, 10 different nationalities, which I think it's an amazing milestone. Uh, we most of the time working remotely since the pandemic started. So we have people working in different countries. So if you want to work from home, that's the place to, to be. You can join us. I think the profiles that we will be looking for mostly are going to be a lot of technical ones, but also we're starting to build our business development team a little bit farther. Uh, from the technical side, we're interested in getting a lot of back-end engineers, which are difficult to get. And of course, we're always doing machine learning and uh, computer vision. That's our key course. So if you're interested in, or you just finished your PhD, or you're interested in kind of uh, joining a company that is doing kind of state-of-the-art algorithms and uh, kind of building on the edge, uh, I think we're one of the best places to go. Excellent. Thanks so much, Rafa, for, for joining us. And if you're interested in checking out Volagrams, we'll have the URL in the uh, the description, as well as you know, links to you know some of uh, uh, Rafa's uh, uh, positions that are open. And thanks so much, Rafa. It's great having you. Thank you very much for having me, and uh, have a nice day. Yeah, good luck to you, man. Cheers. Mm-hmm.